Welcome to the Faith Forward podcast series. Faith Forward is a grassroots network dedicated to bringing together leaders of ministry with children, youth, and families for collaboration, resourcing, and inspiration toward innovative theology and practice. Through this series, we'll learn from creative, forward-thinking leaders who are pushing the boundaries and reimagining what it means to follow Jesus' way of love and justice today. Join us as we instigate a revolution of hope in our world. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Forward podcast. I'm glad that you are back if you're a returning listener. And if you are a new listener, uh, a special welcome to you. Thanks for joining us in this conversation. I am thrilled to be joined today by Beth Corey, who is the Associate Professor in the Practice of Youth Education and Peacebuilding and the Director of the Religious Education Program at Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, Georgia, um, where she also completed her MDiv and her PhD degrees. Uh, Beth teach, researches and teaches in many areas, including uh, transformative pedagogy, conflict transformation, and theories of nonviolence. And her most recent book uh, was just published, with Fortress Press, and it's called Youth Ministry as Peace Education. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Beth. Yes, thanks for having me. So I am really intrigued by your academic title, because I, I'm i just very interested in academic titles in general, because it says a lot about um, how we see our work as educators, as researchers, as public theologians in a lot of ways. So Associate Professor in the Practice of Youth Ministry and Peacebuilding. Um, can, you, can you start by telling us a little bit about, about what that means? It's clearly directly related to the book. Yeah, yes. And I chose that title or negotiated that title mm-hmm. um, 15 years ago. Wow. So that speaks to how long I've been working on this and caring about this. But yes, essentially I was, um, when I was hired on, um, I was hired on to be the director of the Youth Theological Initiative, which I'll explain Mm -hmm. more. Um, But, um, and so that came with it, a title of, you know, professor of of youth education. And I negotiated back and peace building. Right. And and that is because I see primarily my work are, is around teaching nonviolence and peace education, but also as I've come even more to understand sort of the context of youth ministry mm-hmm. in the United States, it comes out of my belief that youth ministry is about peace building, that yes. the, the, the heart of youth ministry in many ways is about uh, bridging this generational gap that actually causes a great deal of harm. Um, And that in some ways, the ways in which adults and youth are siloed um, mirrors some of the ways in which segregated societies create Mm -hmm. stereotypes and then have enact a violence towards each other because they actually don't know each other very well. I have also a background in studying 
conflict in like in Northern Ireland and Israel Palestine. And actually it was sort of my experience, particularly of Northern Ireland, that made me realize that there's, there's something about, there's a similar dynamic between adults and young people that in a more extreme version in some of these conflict zones. Wow. That's really interesting because you, you make it very clear in the book that you're challenging conceptions of youth and, and of young people and in, inviting readers to see adolescence in new ways, in, in ways that are more theologically ro- robust and more complex, and trying to really help we who are adults see youth for who they really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I suppose that goes the other way around as well. I'm a big fan of intergeneration, uh, intergenerationality and of uh, tearing down the silos that exist between the ages and between other aspects of humanity as well um, in the church. I appreciate how you stretch my imagination to kind of see it as this peace building way in a way that would be similar to like to, to Ireland or to uh, Israel, Palestine. It, it demonstrates the, the depth of the chasm. Mm-hmm. And I'm struck by the word violence that you use as well, because it's not a physical violence. Or I hope it's not a, a, a physical violence. So what, what is that? What, what are these kind of violences that, that result from this uh, siloing? Yeah, I would argue that there is physical violence as well, but oh, okay. I'll, I'll say more, yeah. you know, what I mean by that. So, so one of the things I talk about in my book is that we operate with at least two sort of dominant images of youth. One mm-hmm. is the incomplete adult and the other is the precocious delinquent and then i spend a little bit of time kind of tracing the history of how we got there which colleagues like david white have done like in much more depth right and it comes out of this sort of tracing the history of how the concept of adolescence is socially constructed and historically Mm -hmm. contextualized right but what happens is you know you start you move and all the other historical factors like industrialization right but you move from a primarily agrarian uh society in which it is intergenerational and Mm -hmm. the moment you can feed chickens you're contributing meaningfully to the household right Mm -hmm. to a point where you have this late industrial society where to have a to have a child people are choosing not to because it's so expensive right because children are a drain right because we're investing in them for the future but they don't have anything to contribute now and and then in the midst of all of that you have you know the high school and the extension of education in a way that keeps young people in this silo where they're hanging out with a lot of people their own age yes um and a small minority of adults who we've contracted out to deal with them Mm -hmm. and the rest of adults if you don't actually live with a teenager or are employed to deal with teenagers you may not come across a teenager on your regular basis ever right and in the midst of that right then are the stereotypes fall into that gap right so the the less it's in the same way like with white people's views of black people or Mm -hmm. protestants and catholics right like the less you actually know people like that the more the images on the media shape your view right right and so you think about the images that we have of teenagers in media they're you know they're either sort of lazy spoiled irresponsible they're on their phone all the time they don't care about anything but themselves they're all they're doing is putting likes on instagram right? right 
or they are the thugs in the street burning down the Wendy's during the George Floyd protest, right? Yeah. Um, and they have deep history and they're related to race and they're related to class. And so what I try to argue a little bit in the book, I mean, mostly I'm talking about more youth ministry practice, but yeah. um, but I argue in other places as well, like there's a deep history of sort of demonizing young people or putting them into boxes, right? And so out of that comes policies, right? So we, mm -hmm. uh, once you start to see young people as dangerous, you start passing laws that um, uh, try them as adults, yeah. rather than as kids we put them in youth detention centers you know we um make schools like prisons with armed guards and metal mm -hmm. detectors right so sometimes it's more of a psychological kind of harm the kind of harm where young people believe that they don't have anything to contribute that they are who we say they are that they're lazy and irresponsible um, and shallow um, and don't have anything to contribute to society right now or they physically are hurt because mm -hmm. they end up in the juvenile just justice system right. or drop out of school or get shot down like Mike Brown or other young people who, you know, of color who, so, um, so it is a form of violence and, yeah. you know, and, and it just plays out differently around gender and class and race, right? So the immense amount of strain that middle-class kids have around perfection and trying to get into college and the way that manifests itself in eating disorders and being addicted to certain medications and mm -hmm. you know so so when you start naming all the ways in which the way we uh treat young people manifests itself in you know suicide and um risk-taking behavior you know that mm -hmm. these these aren't just these aren't the marks of kids being kids these are the mm -hmm. results of adults deciding to pass policies based on our assumptions of who kids are and so one of the ways that you have encountered uh directly and gotten to know young people is as you said through yti through the youth theological initiative can you d describe a little bit about that and, and for those who might not be familiar with it so the Youth Theological Initiative was founded in 1993, so more than a generation of young people ago. Yeah. Um, and it was founded by folks who were already starting to see some of these dynamics around the way we we treat young people and mm -hmm. um, and by folks who were who really understood that theology is something that is life giving. Mm -hmm. And that if you can engage young people in theological reflection, it can not only pass on the tradition, pass on Christianity more effectively than we've been doing, but that it also it, 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 it enlivens them, that they're hungry to have deep, deep conversations about things that matter. And so YTI has been, it's a, it's a summer program housed at Emory University through Candler School of Theology for uh for older high school kids yeah. um in the early days they would actually come and live in the dorms uh during the summer for four weeks right then it went down to three weeks and now of course with the pandemic we're experimenting with sort of online versions and mm -hmm. you know who knows what the next iteration will be 
But it's very much about bringing a very diverse group of young people together to live in intentional community, yeah. intentional community that treats them as full human beings, as yes. empowered young people, um, and engages them in conversations around social justice and theological reflection, uh, using social analysis and theological reflection, and really like saying, we, you're already theologians. You're already theologians. You don't have to wait until you get an MDiv. You don't have to only, you know, wait, be ordained to be a pastor. Like you are a theologian now. If you've asked why do bad things happen to good people, if yeah. you've asked, you know, will my Muslim friend go to heaven? You know, if you've asked, you know, why is it that my best friend got killed in a DUI accident? You're a theologian. Mm -hmm. And those tend to be the young people that come to our program are the ones that have that are asking these kind of deep questions. And um, it's one that I started working for the program when I was myself an um, a MDiv student at Candler, continued yeah. on when I was a doctoral student, and then uh, eventually became director of, and so it's shaped me completely. I mean, this book is very much YTI through and through. It's the commitment to young people. It's the belief in, in their own power uh, as change makers. Um, but it's also this living in community with them where it really was, you know, people from all kinds of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, denominational traditions, uh, unchurched, we've had atheists in our group, you know, and figuring out how to live together and, and when you create the conditions for them to lead and you sort of step aside and let them lead some really amazing things happen. So I've just seen it with my own eyes, which is why I'm so committed to it as a concept. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the YTI experience uh, in your in, through your involvement with it in, in many different ways, as you said, from MDiv right up until um, now, uh, has really shaped the practices of peace building that you talk about in, in the book. I mean, you talk about uh, community and scripture and practices of worship and, and mission and nonviolent action. Um, can you can you give a couple practices for our listeners who are just wanting to sink their teeth into this? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the, um, so my first chapter on community, um, I draw on the work of Peter Block, Mm -hmm. who writes whose book his book is called community the structure of yeah. belonging and um and i use that as a lens to look at, at at some of the ways that we try to build community at yti to give to to create the conditions for young people to 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 the experience uh to to belong in two senses to feel like you're a member and to feel ownership it belongs yes. to me right so um so one of the ways we do that is we have what's called a governance council Mm -hmm. um in which uh i mean it's just it's just straight up democracy right so the there's a couple of the youth who serve on the council um each week and their job is to kind of keep their ears to the ground and find out how things are going in the community and then they gather with some of the staff and we make decisions do we need to change the schedule do yeah. we need to you know do we need to make some changes in the policy but also like is there a problem that we have to brainstorm how to figure out and so and i have discovered that the governance council by actually having young people be equal members um they come up with way more creative solutions mm -hmm. to problems than the adults would have if they had just been doing it on their own and usually far more grace-filled mm -hmm. So that's one thing. There's also a lot of things I talk about at the kind of social engineering we do, where we sort of deliberately uh, put diverse people into situations so mm -hmm. that they're sort of 
have the proximity to each other. But that's one thing. Another thing that uh, we we've developed over time, that's a fairly labor intensive thing that we do, um, is Game of Life, which yeah. is a simulation game. Um, and I describe it in the book on mission, but essentially, and I'm sure lots of people have done simulation games, even like the hunger, you know, 24 hour with the 36 hour famine, you know, there are different yeah. kinds of things where you're, you know, the pedagogy is about trying to experience something, right? Yeah. So what we do is we set up, um, you know, we give different people different codes. They don't know what the codes mean, but it's a sort of intersectional identity that um, determines sort of their race and class and, you know, a few other markers. And they're given different amount of money, depending on what that code is. And then they're told to go out and live their life. And they yeah. have different stations, the Education Bureau, the, um, the, um, the Employment Bureau, the mm -hmm. Marketplace. You know, and different things, and then they then the staff are trained to teach them differently, uh, to mm -hmm. treat them differently using mm -hmm. microaggressions. So that's not too obvious, but it becomes clear that there's um, built-in wow. inequality to the system, right? And at the end of it, and and I mean, I won't go into all the details, but it's very carefully done, I should say, yeah. in which in which that I don't, I try to assign people roles that are different from the role they already have, so that it won't be triggering. Mm -hmm. um, but we, at the end of the experience, we uh, debrief it. They count up how much money they actually have. They start to see the structural inequality, and then we use that to talk about uh, powers and principalities and mm -hmm. structural sin. So they have this experience. And in that that it lasts about 45 minutes. And then we move into getting them to connect them to some theological and sociological concepts. Yeah. And then that preps them for when we go out and do service work and mission work, because then we can start to point out, like, see how, you know, the way that gentrification is happening here is impacting people over here, right? So that right. we can start to talk about these big things like racism and um, income inequality, right? So that's a, that's a big one. Another smaller one that's a little bit easier to do, because I know that sounds like a fairly daunting um, exercise, is we do a, a, a biblical uh, self-inventory okay. where they go through a series of questions and kind of um, try to understand how their personal experience of the Bible to that point in their life. And, and that gets them talking about social location and how the way you interpret scripture is very much shaped by your experience of scripture in the communities that you went up with, um, you know, who you are and how you read it. And so just, and that good faithful Christians can, can read the same passage and have different interpretations yes. and that that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really intrigued by the way this is so steeped in theology, even when it's not uh, readily apparent. But the but the the whole process is is theological. Um, one of the things that, that really jumped out to me in uh, in in your book is that you ask some very pointed questions at the beginning, and some of them are about practice. But there's a couple uh, that are you know essentially you say does raising young prophets require us to shift our image of who Jesus is? Does it require us to shift our image of what youth ministry is? And I love the pairing of those two together because how we see Jesus and how we see ministry, regardless of who that ministry is, is with, in this case, youth ministry, are deeply intertwined. And so these 
exercises and these these practices that you're describing that help us or help young people and i'm sure the adults alongside them kind of unpack assumptions and uh, stretch their imaginations and see the world in in more complex ways um, certainly has a theological effect as well. So can you talk a little bit about those those shifts, about the image of Jesus and the uh, shifts in the image of youth ministry as well? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because when I um, first started conceiving of the book, um, one of the things that really struck me, I wanted to have these sort of cultural snippets about young people and so one of yeah. the things i draw on is the novel the hate you give right um you know which is sort of coming of age story for a black lives matter moment but one of the things that jumped out out of the page for me is that this young woman star carter always talks about black jesus black mm -hmm. jesus their family prays to black jesus there are images of black jesus on the wall black jesus in the community and I thought, you know, and, and you come to find out that Angie Thomas, the author, is deeply Christian mm. and um, undoubtedly praised to Black Jesus. And so right. it raised this question for, for me, like, okay, it matters what your image of Jesus is. Yeah. Um, Star Carter growing up in a church and in a family that prayed to Black Jesus is probably more likely to feel empowered to stand up on a car with a bullhorn and cry out for justice for black lives. Mm -hmm. So it got me thinking, okay, how do the images of our, how are our images of Jesus shaping our actions and our theology? And, um, and so then once I started thinking about that, I started realizing, okay, there are several theologies out there of peace building. Yeah. I'm certainly not the first peace theologian, right? There's lots of, I mean, John Howard Yoder and, you know, you know, the historic peace churches and the Catholic churches in particular have really great robust theologies of peace. Yeah, and absolutely. they mostly look at like the Sermon on the Mount, if you're going to go to Jesus, right? Yeah. I wanted to do something different because I wanted to say, okay, all the things that Jesus teach, teaches certainly through the words that he says when he preaches, in my view, teaches peace we also need to look at what he does mm -hmm. and how he acts. And I don't think we pay as much attention to sort of the way he, the way he teaches, not just what he teaches. Yeah. And so, um, so once you start really looking at that and sort of puzzling around, okay, what is he doing when he makes everyone at the feeding of the 5,000 sit down in groups? Yeah. Well, he's changing the dynamic so that they're not all looking at him as the expert, but they're looking at each other, mm -hmm. right? Like once you start really imagining, oh, Jesus was teaching them how to build community. Mm -hmm. And then you start to see, oh, okay, why is he sending them out in pairs and then having them come back? He's training them. Mm -hmm. And then he's debriefing when they come back so that by the time they start to make the march on Jerusalem, you know, he's already taught them a whole bunch about nonviolent strategy. So, yeah. um, so my argument is we need to, to look at what Jesus does and how he teaches in addition to what he teaches. And that if we do, it's going to start changing the way we think about Christology and the way that we think about, you know, what does it mean? You know, if, if youth ministry, you say youth ministry and Jesus are intertwined, well, we think about how much youth ministry is committed to relational and incarnational. Yeah. We talk about incarnational ministry, right? Which, you know, like Jesus coming down to earth to be with us, we have come down and plopped ourselves into youth culture to be in solidarity with these young people. Right. Um, so building on that, well, okay, Jesus didn't just 
come down to earth and be incarnate he also did a bunch of stuff while mm -hmm. he was here so like let's look really closely at what he actually did and you know it depends on your denomination and kind of your theological orientation but i think a lot of folks kind of you know there's jesus the baby jesus that was born and then we jump over to the crucifixion and the resurrection as like the main message which of course it's central but mm -hmm. there's all this time that jesus is doing stuff yes that we could learn from so that's what I'm trying to shift is like, let's shift our image. And then once you really dig into it, you start to see, oh, you know, Jesus does some stuff that's like really hard to sit with, you know, like, mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus and the Canaanite woman, he's a jerk. You mm -hmm. know? And then what does that do to our, the our Christology if we have to sit with the fact that Jesus is sort of being really pretty mean to this yeah. Canaanite woman who's begging for forgiveness. So I wrestle with that as an example in there as well. So yeah, I, I, I think, and I think there's an entire other book that needs to be written about Jesus as a peace educator yeah. and how he actually teaches peace. Yeah, that, that image is sticking with me and the way you talk about how he's trained his disciples in nonviolent intervention and nonviolent communication before they start the, the, the walk toward Jerusalem, which is, you know, the, the, the beginning of the end of his, of his ministry. And yet, even along the way, they're always making these mistakes. And he is still doing things, not just teaching them with his words, but but doing things again and again. Uh, I spent some time with some Anabaptist traditions. And, and I remember uh, someone once saying, you know, if you if you look at what non what uh, the, the historic peace churches you know what they really look to in, in scripture you know they they really value the new testament but in the new testament they really value the gospels and in the gospels they really value the teachings of jesus and in the teachings of jesus what they really value is the sermon on the mount i think there's a lot of value to that but you're by focusing on those those the the, the words of jesus right the red letters right with this development mm -hmm. of the red letter christianity and all of that which is really crucial yeah we can't do it at the expense of of what Jesus has done uh, as well, which, as you helpfully point out, is very complicated and not at all straightforward and completely open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. And because of all of that is really interesting and really has power to do some transformative things because it the more we look at it, uh, the more we can see it in new ways and be transformed uh, in, in the process. And how much more amazing is that when we do that work with young people as right. well? Um, so we're, we're talking, speaking of, you know, what Jesus did now moving on to, to what, what we can do as, as leaders with, with youth, um, what advice do you have for youth ministers who are wanting to transform their ministry uh, in ways that nurture peace building um, in ways that raise young prophets in our, in our world to use the words that you use in uh, in your book my first piece of advice which is the piece of advice i have to give to myself every time mm -hmm. i go back to engaging with young people is to be really mindful about the way we have been shaped by these stereotypes of young people because right. they they show up in all kinds of subtle ways even when you are intellectually committed to youth empowerment, right? So, um, and in training staff for YTI, we have to go over this again and again. And when you're stressed out and when you're cranky and, or when you're pressed for time, you're gonna default to these dominant ways that we've been shaped. So, right, it shows it's, itself in discipline. 
when a, a kid breaks a rule and how we deal with it tends to be uh, defaulting to an authoritarian model rather than trying to engage, say, nonviolent communication or some kind right. of way of like finding out what the need is that's driving that behavior so that you can actually get to um, really understanding what's making that that kid tick so that you mm -hmm. can you know, have a transformative moment rather than just reinscribing the power dynamic, right? Yes. And and I and, and and it just no matter how well intentioned you are, it shows up. Or, you know, it's just right. the little side comments where the parent comes up and they're like, well, you know, they're blah blah blah, so irresponsible, you know, and, and then you kind of play into that. You're like, yeah, you know, because they are irresponsible, but so are adults, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. But it, I mean, yeah, I mean, they can be, you know, make mistakes right mm -hmm. it's not like they don't you know it's like yeah of course and some of it is because you know some of the things we think are important they just don't think is important mm -hmm. but um but so so some of my advice is just to develop that practice of mindfulness about mm -hmm. when you're kind of playing into these stereotypes and when the young people are playing into it themselves because of course they've internalized it right so yeah someday i want to fight for justice you know or i maybe i want to be a lawyer or maybe i want to like go do this thing or maybe i run for office but not now mm -hmm. right and getting them to see like no you can make huge changes right now in your circle of friends or in your church or in you know and and so helping them become mindful of the way those stereotypes are, they're internalizing those stereotypes as well. And of course, it's gonna be different across social location. And, yeah. and this is where, you know, the research like the Ann Wimberly and others that do research on the black church, you know, they already know that their young people internalize these horrid stereotypes about, you know, dangerous black men and, you know, uh, um, promiscuous black women. Mm -hmm. And so they're already mm -hmm. knowing that they have to help these young people resist that, you know, but I'm not as sure that middle class and white churches and youth, you know, understand that there is also an oppressive stereotype that's impacting their lives as well. Right. Um, yeah. And then, you know, then the next thing is just start creating the conditions for youth to lead don't be afraid of failing yes failure is good let them fail and let yourself fail when it's safe to fail so that they don't end up failing huge down the road right yeah. and making it okay to take risks and to experiment and to fail i mean one of the other mistakes and there's like some research around this like ethnographic research about the way that adultism is an ism, right? That adultism works where when adults are working with youth, you know, they kind of keep going along behind them to kind of mm -hmm. clean it up and make mm -hmm. it nicer and just kind of doing some of the work for them so that it'll turn out okay. And that just keeps reinscribing that disempowerment. And it's like, you gotta let them do it and do it on their own terms. And that gets scary, right? So then you yeah. have to become mindful of, What's my need for control? What's my need for my risk tolerance level? You know, obviously there's some kind of risks where we we shouldn't allow to happen if we can help it for, for safety's sake. But I do think that there's a lot more room for experimentation that we should be allowing. Which is, going back to what you said, exactly what Jesus did with the people he was around, the disciples, the groups, all of that. It was going out there, and as you said, coming back for debriefing, uh, I'm doing all this midrash in my head and picturing <laughs> how those conversations played out. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, this has been a really robust, uh, thoughtful conversation. I'm really grateful for you sharing your your expertise in this area and uh, for giving some ideas for how to get going. It sounds to me like this isn't something that calls us to overturn the tables of what we're doing with youth ministry, but it does call us to make strategic, informed, small choices that have tremendous impact, regardless of, of what program we're using or what context is or how many youth we have. We can all find ways of practicing um, nonviolence and, and, and engaging in peace building um, in our ministries with young people. So yeah. thank you uh, again for that. And uh, of course, I'm going to uh, encourage readers to pick up a copy of Youth Ministry as Peace Education, Overcoming Silence, Transforming Violence, only a few months old, so we can still call it hot off the presses. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Faith Forward podcast series. If you want to learn more from creative thinkers and innovative leaders, be sure to subscribe or visit faith-forward.net.